Uh, Father, we come here to glorify your name, to uh, enjoy your scriptures, to see your son Jesus in light of the gospels, uh, and to culminate today in worship of you. Align our hearts with your word, uh, with your spirit, so that we'll have vibrant, joyous worship of our risen Christ. Amen. And so, let me recap um, <clears throat> what we did on Wednesdays. One of the things, like, I, uh, I'm so glad for, like, Josiah or Nathan or people who was like, when they preach, they're, like, super topical and they've got topics they want to study about and they're like, hey, we need to, like, go deeper into this, like, loving God deeper thing and we're going to talk about that or we're going to talk about, like, the prophet-priest-king thing and we're going to, like, we have to understand the implications. I'm like... I'm just going to go off the scripture readings because they're right there. And I don't, I, I, if I was doing it on a more regular basis on Sundays, I don't think I can come up with a topic all the time. And thankfully, our, our scripture readings give us a topic. So on Wednesday, we did the Acts, Psalm, and John. And it's all about unity, all about fellowship between believers. Um, and so on Wednesdays, uh, I've got five minutes less than I do this morning, which isn't a lot of time. Uh, 40 minutes or whatever, 45 minutes is not a lot of time to give very much information. Uh, so uh, all I'm doing on Wednesdays is trying to throw a bunch of things out there, hermeneutical principles, things to think about, um, and trying to get through all of the scripture readings. And so uh, using, we started with Psalm 133 as... Um, you guys can, you guys got Bibles, you can look at it. It's like three verses. It's a chiasm, it's a chiastic structure where how great it is when brothers dwell in unity. And the last verse is, from there comes uh, the blessing of the Lord, life everlasting. And so using that as our kind of matrix for the theme of unity and fellowship and community together is that the Lord loves to bless those in unity and fellowship. And that's where the anointing comes from. And the last uh, part of Psalm 133 says, life evermore, or life everlasting. Real life in, uh, in the Lord is in Christian fellowship. And it's not in discorded Christian fellowship, it's in unified Christian fellowship. And so uh, he loves to pour out his blessing in that. And we saw that in a historical narrative in Acts, where for the first time uh, in the biblical narrative, and probably the first time um, in any um, sense of world history, we saw a community of believers actually laying down their lives for each other, living in unity, uh, and the church has continued uh, to press on to that type of unity for almost 2,000 years. And so uh, we just briefly looked at um, how the Old Testament, nothing, none of that came to fruition. None of that level of ongoing unity and fellowship in uh, God's people was possible until the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and after Christ's resurrection, and um, they had power to do it. And so there were some imperatives we looked at in First John, uh, specifically confession of sin and just being um, vulnerable and open and having a person to confess to, and that uh, we all need to confess. It says, if anyone was out sin, uh, he's a liar. <laughs> and so... Uh, if you don't feel like you have anything to con confess and walk in the light in, then you're a liar. <laughs> Amen. Uh, so, 
Uh, let's just kind of sum it up there, and we're going to go into our uh, gospel reading, and then Tiffany's going to come up and read it. I've got, you got one? Great. I'm just going to mute myself. All right. John 20, 19 through 31. If you would like to stand, please do. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord, my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is the reading of the Lord. Thank you, Tiffany. So we'll just kind of go through this verse by verse, but we're going to start at the end, and then we'll go back to the beginning of our scripture readings. So uh, rarely in scripture, um, I shouldn't say rarely, but it's, it's somewhat often, but it's not always the case where the writer, the author tells us exactly what the intent of the book is, right? Like we've got in Titus where he's writing, uh, it's a different type of letter, it's an epistle. So he's writing and he's telling Titus, hey, finish the work I told you to do, set up elders and, you know, command them they should be this character and, like, finish the work, right? Uh, in, um, in Acts, we've got, you know, the first uh, part of the letter talks about Luke saying, like, you know, I wrote to you, Theophilus, that I might uh, have an orderly account of everything that Jesus did and taught, right? He's, that's what the book is about. And so John doesn't tell us till the end of the book 
about what it's about. So you're supposed to read 20 chapters. He even says it again in chapter 21. <clears throat> and then you're like, oh, that's what it was about. And so he says very clearly um, in verse uh, 31, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so um, there's multiple things, especially in the book of John, where, uh, where the Apostle John is writing and very clearly making a comparison to Adam in some ways, right? Like in the, but he doesn't say that directly. And so there's a lot of imagery in John specifically about Jesus being the ultimate Adam or the second Adam. Uh, but, you know, what we're supposed to understand is that he's the Christ, he's the Messiah, the Son of God. And so um, he doesn't bring this out in John, but I think it's in, uh, is it in Matthew where he takes the lineage back all the way to Adam and then it says Adam, the Son of God, right? And so... Um, we're talking about the true son here, that Jesus is the Christ. All of the, we're supposed to understand as we're reading this, that in Adam, um, after the fall and the, the proto-evangel in Genesis 3.16, that there is coming a seed from Eve that's going to crush the head of the serpent who brought death, right? He's not writing this down in like a systematic form where that's the reader is supposed to understand when he says he's the Christ, well, we're supposed to understand what the Christ means. And so uh, through crushing the head of the serpent, uh, we're, the Christ is also going to crush death, right? And so by believing, you might have life in his name. And he's telling you that uh, all of the accounts in this book are to bring about faith, to bring about belief. You're supposed to believe in something through this. And so we'll see that a little bit in Thomas and the disciples and different things, but... Um, I guess if you look on your outline, before we get started, I actually forgot I made this note on Wednesday, and I talked about it, but I guess I was going to talk about it today. We're still in, just so everyone knows, we're still in Easter time, or Easter tide. There's seven Sundays in Easter. If you're used to going to church, and there's one Sunday in Easter, that's a very new thing. That's a very new uh, thing in modern times. Um, there is a period of Easter, just like we have a period of Advent of, of preparing for the coming of the King of Christ's birth. We have a period of Lent, preparing for uh, the King's uh, death and his, and his resurrection. And then we have, after Advent, we have Christmas tide. There's a season of Christmas. It's not just one Sunday. Um, and so I'm, I don't know, I don't know the background of most of us, but I'm assuming uh, you're like, if you're like me, we went to church and there was one Sunday for Easter, there was one Sunday for Christmas, and that's all you got. It's like they're cutting you short. Uh, but um, it's seven Sundays, Easter tide is seven Sundays long, and we look in our scripture readings, or we're just looking at accounts of the risen Christ, of, of what he did and commanded post-resurrection, pre-ascension. And so if you're following the scripture readings at all through the, the uh, liturgical calendar, you'll notice that. And so something else to note, I guess before we go any further, uh, is that uh, there's two Easter's. There's May 2nd in the Eastern Orthodox uh, tradition, um, 
and they celebrate Easter on May 2nd. And so, does anybody, is, are people pretty familiar with that? Uh, or at least that there's two Easter's, there's two different time periods, and the Eastern Orthodox celebrate a little bit later. And so, maybe if you're not familiar, uh, real quick to uh, talk about this a little bit on Wednesday, to recap, um, you can do your own, you can find out really easy why, why they do it, but, uh, and do your own research, but essentially there's, they, use, they still use the Julian calendar instead of the Gregorian calendar, that's the first reason. So that pushes the date off from when Roman Catholics and Protestants celebrate Easter. And then the second reason is a historical theological reason, which is, uh, I would say beyond interesting, something to consider is, um, Side note, I've been trying to find a, if anybody knows how to find a modern translation of the First Council of Nicaea online or in writing, let me know. I'd like to read it. Uh, I searched for a while and all I could find was like people talking about it. I couldn't find source documents. And so I'd really like to read source documents. Um, but in the First Council of Nicaea, after the, uh, the Arian heresy, that was the first thing that they were meeting about. That was the first thing on the docket. And then the second thing on the docket was, when do we celebrate Easter? And because uh, if you're thinking in three, the 300s, um, there was a definitely shift in time period, especially in the Roman Empire, as uh, Christianity was becoming the predominant religion and uh, beyond just legalized, was becoming uh, the moving force and ideology in Rome, and which was controlled, controlling the whole world. Uh, the Christians were deciding, when do we celebrate Easter? Because uh, that's pretty important. We're going to be unified. And so their conclusion came about uh, saying we're not going to go, it's going to be in the Easter or in the uh, scriptures, Jesus gets crucified and is resurrected. He's, um, he's crucified after Passover. And so they decided we're going to celebrate Easter after Passover in accordance with the Gospels. And... Uh, we're not going to go off of what the Jew, when the Jews decide Passover is. Because by that time, after 70 AD, the dispersion and persecution of the Jews was so heavy that they don't even know who's a Levite, who's a Benjaminite, who's from what tribe, because um, uh, God had ordained that uh, because they crucified the Lord. And so... There was no, the Jews, uh, especially, so in the Council of Nicaea, the first council, they decided that they weren't going to go off the Jewish calendar and when they thought Passover was because they were, they believed they were calculating it wrong. Um, and so, plus they didn't want to say, we're going to have to submit ourselves to the Jews of when they do Passover and then celebrate our Easter, right? And so they decided on, um, on doing it that way. Uh, it's much like, I talked about this on Wednesday, um, if you go to Israel and you see Jews like praying at a wall, they say they're praying at the temple wall. I don't believe that's the temple wall. I believe that's a Roman wall uh, for a couple reasons. One reason is because Jesus said that no stone would be left unturned on this wall. And so I don't think there's any temple left. I think they're actually praying in a different location to a Roman wall, which if you told a Jew that, they'd be pretty upset uh, because the, Rome, the Romans uh, destroyed their temple. And so anyways, uh, it's worth um, studying and knowing how other traditions and, and 
and mindsets view different uh, things like the church calendar. And so let's actually get into our scripture reading for today. And so let's go to, we'll be in John 20. Um, Verse 19, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, and so uh, right there, John's making a declaration. He already said this before uh, in chapter 20, verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene, this is the same day that Jesus was resurrected. This is Easter Sunday. The doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. And so... um, one of the things that's like super important is uh, when do we sell, just like the early Christians were, when do we celebrate Easter? Of when do we celebrate the Sabbath? Or in the New Testament, it's referred to over and over as the Lord's Day. And so this is why Jesus appeared on Sunday in the resurrection. He appeared to Mary Magdalene. She ran back, told the other disciples. She, he appeared to others. Uh, and then he appears to the disciples on that evening or that, that day. And so there are theological and practical implications. And as we are going to see later, I guess we can jump the gun a little bit, is after Thomas doubts a little bit or wants to see the same proof, it's one week later on the next Sunday, which is eight days. We'll get to that, Roseanne. Don't worry. We're getting there. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, is that on the next Sunday, Jesus appeared to his disciples again. And so part of that is, uh, is that when Jesus was doing his earthly ministry in Matthew 23, he said that I'm taking my kingdom away from you, the Jews, and giving it to a people producing its fruit. And he's bringing about a new covenant through the Holy Spirit, is what we see. And so uh, there's a reason why it's called the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's not that they're not interwoven and aligned. It's that there was an old covenant and there was a new covenant. Uh, I haven't done any animal sacrifices recently. I don't know if you guys have. Uh, I hope not. Uh, When I was a kid, I'd like to try to catch animals and sometimes they'd live, sometimes they wouldn't. But but there's a... uh, Hebrews talks about when... Uh, there's a change in priesthood. There's a necessarily a change in the law. And so there is definitely a hierarchical priesthood change in the law. And that includes when we celebrate. The Lord decided to, uh, to rise from the dead, and he talks about giving us peace or rest on Sunday, which is the first day of the week. And so if you look at the old covenant, it was what? You were commanded to work for six days and then rest on the seventh because that's what God did. We're supposed to imitate him. We're supposed to be like him. Um, You know, that's the Exodus 20 brings about that account. Numbers 5 in, I'm sorry, Deuteronomy 5 speaks about us being slaves and it gives a different reason why we should rest on the Sabbath. But we're supposed to imitate God himself. I don't know if that's me because I'm not, if I'm moving or something. But, but we're called to imitate God himself. That's our reason for, uh, and so that was a work, 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 six days, 
not five, six days, and then rest on the seventh, right? Rest from your regular routine labors. And then Hebrew talks about an eternal rest that's, used, that's yet to come, but we're supposed to be imitators. And it was, you get to work and then rest. But now in Christ, we are resting on the first day. We're in Christ, we're celebrating his resurrection, and then we work for six days, not five. And, uh, and so it's a new way of doing things. And so there's um, obviously theological implications to that of whether we're going to be workspaced and never be able to. Like if you look at what the Jews were doing in the Pharisees, even on the Sabbath day, they were implementing more work. You can only walk this many steps. You can't spit. You can't do this. You can't do this. Right? It was like a lot of work to be able to rest. There was no true rest in the Pharisees. And so uh, in the resurrection, we rest, we find grace and peace, and then we have the ability to go out and work. And so uh, that's a huge theme in, in all of what grace means, and go and study these things further. And so the disciples were uh, in a room, we don't exactly know where, uh, but they were gathered together, at least the uh, 11 or 10 of them, minus Judas and minus t- um, uh, Thomas, and for the fear of the Jews. So in context, uh, the Jews were willing to not only have a false trial, crucify the Lord, the one they were supposed to look for, but then uh, in other gospel accounts, remember that it says that uh, they went to the governors and said that the disciples stole the body, mm-hmm. right? And so if that was being perpetuated, right, um, it would, think about it from like a Roman, the Roman soldiers said that, you know, they would have been liable to death because they didn't do their duty, but then the Jews paid them off. But then, okay, so something happened, whether it's true or false, someone's going to pay, whether it's true or false, right? So the fear was most likely that not just because they crucified Jesus, they're going to crucify us, but they hadn't seen the Lord Lord risen yet. And so they're in fear that there's this lie perpetuating that they're going to be liable, right? They're going to knock on the door and say, where's the body? And they're going to be like, can you come back at six? Uh, Maybe a little bit later. Let's talk about it, right? And they're... the Romans didn't really have like a real judicial way of dealing with people in such a way that there was going to be like a fair trial uh, or there was going to be like a lawyer or evidence presented and then you get to uh, maybe get released on bail and whatever. Uh, they were going to come and they're going to say, where's the body? And if you don't have it, then you hit it somewhere and we're going to torture you till you tell us where it's at. And then... Uh, goes on from there, right? So that's the fear. Uh, and Jesus came and stood among them, right? They're in fear, they're terrified. And he says, peace be with you. This is the first time uh, he says it in this account. And so uh, not just being peace, like I remember when I would first read this and I'd be like, oh, there's like someone just appears in your room and uh, I'd be pretty terrified. And that is true. But 
He's telling them in direct fear among the Jews because of what he was about to say. He says, peace be with you. Uh, and when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, said to them again peace be with you. And so uh, surely they were um, in fear and trembling. And Jesus' message uh, is peace. It's be still. It's, hey, it, it's going to be okay. It's, hey guys, uh, it's Jesus. I'm resurrected. Uh, I know I just got crucified and it was three days ago and they're looking for the body, but here I am. So just calm down. I got it covered, right? Um, and so uh, he's instilling into them uh, the this the mindset they should have had, right? In other gospels, he, I think it's in Luke, he tells them very plainly, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and, in three, and I'm going to be crucified and in three days I'll rise again. And they're like, what does this mean? Huh, this is some kind of metaphor for something. Right, there's accounts um, where uh, Jesus clearly said what was going to happen. Even in... Uh, Luke 17, I think, in the Transfiguration, it, uh, I, like, I like that gospel account because it says they stood among Elijah and Moses and talked about his exodus, right? his, his departure of what was going to happen. And they were there overhearing it. And so um, this is to kind of bring in uh, other kind of tenets in Scripture is, you know, when... Romans 12 talks about not being conformed to the world, but being transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's what it really takes, right? Uh, we could have all kinds of fears and legitimate fears of, you know, like here the disciples were legitimately fearful of death and persecution and false trials and shams and this whole, you know, they had um, thought that the kingdom of God was going to come through Christ and he was going to be installed as like this king and they were going to kick out the Romans and then it didn't go anything how they thought. Like this was totally like unexpected. And when, even when they saw Jesus like riding in on a donkey and they're laying palm branches and they're like, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're like, this is it. This is what we've been traveling around for three years for. And then he gets crucified, right? They didn't have the mind and the mindsets that they were supposed to have. They had, they were, because they were in, we can tell because they were in fear. And so Jesus is uh, just gently pushing them and he's like, peace, peace be with you. It's like, we're here. And what he's about to say um, is even maybe more shocking. Uh, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Right? He's, Jesus's mission, his main mission was to bring about the kingdom of God. The disciples knew that. He talked about that. All the parables, most of the parables were about that. And he's saying that he's the king. He's the Christ. He came into his city. He did uh, the work he came to do. And now he's passing it along. You guys now are going to bring about the kingdom of God. It will be through you. And just as I came, right, here's that imitation sense, just as I came, now you are going, just as I was sent by the Father, I am sending you. 
you're going to finish my work. And um, I don't know exactly what went through the disciples' head. I like to use uh, biblical, this kind of like holy imagination. Uh, I think it's a gift of God to like, you think of things like um, The Chosen or different like mini-series like that, which are extra biblical in the sense of maybe it could have happened like this, maybe it couldn't have, but it's a, it's a kind of fresh light on things and it pulls in biblical themes. And I think those are good things because when you're reading, you don't get like, what were the disciples thinking exactly and how did they react and what were they eating? And uh, you have to use your imagination a little bit. And so we see some of those things fulfilled and coming to light as we look through history and through the scriptures. But if I was one of the disciples sitting there, I'd be like, oh, okay. And if I had, if I then had a sense of peace that Jesus was resurrected and he's alive, I'd be like, oh, wow, we're really going to do it. Oh, but you just said like, as the father sent you and it, like you, they killed you. And uh, does that mean like, we're not going to come in like triumphantly through like certain means and it's not going to be like prosperity and, and physical peace all the time? No, because they crucified Christ. Just as the Father sent me, so you will be sent. Um, and then, going to verse 22, and when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. And so, oh, real quick, just backing up, uh, just a note, because we like to think in our modern uh, ways, maybe with like, I was having a conversation with Lily this morning and she was relating to me uh, something about an X-Men movie that she had seen. And I was like, oh, okay. Like, and I kind of got the gist of it from whatever she was describing. And we kind of think of like things in, and even like I was talking with Anvesh, he saw a movie where there was like teleporting and I really liked the movie and we talked about it a little bit. And so we tend to think that Jesus is just like this mystical, like resurrected person who's like walking through walls and he's the immaterial one. But we look in 1 Corinthians 15, this world is transient. The things that are eternal uh, are from, from God. But it says that these things, this material world is transient. It's not the most real thing. Jesus' resurrected body was more real than the room he was in, Amen. if that makes sense. So we tend to think that Jesus is like just appearing like, and like comes back in and whatever, and, uh, because this is the reality we live in. But we're going to have resurrected bodies like him for all eternity. His body lasts. Maybe it's the walls that are not going to last. Maybe he's not walking through walls. Maybe the walls aren't real. Uh, maybe there is no spoon. <laughs> Right, and so we tend to think in like these, like Jesus' body isn't real, and he's just like coming and walking through the walls. But uh, exactly how to make sense of it, I don't know what to tell you. But just something to consider is that this world is transient, and his body, his resurrected state, is eternal. And so he says, "Peace again." He says, "I'm going to send you," and then he breathes on them the Holy Spirit. And so let's cut back to John 14 a little bit and just be reminded in context of a few days earlier uh, what he says. 
and say so I want to get at least to verse 27. And so I'll probably jump around a little bit. Uh, let's just start at verse 18. And I'll read 18 through 27 or 28. Or maybe 30. Uh, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you yet a little while and the world will see me no more. But you will see me. Right? There's the starting, the seminal idea of I'm leaving, but I'm going to send you the world's not going to see me, but they're going to see you, right? You're going to be sent. Uh, but you will see me because I live and also will you live, right? John later in chapter 20 talks about believing in him and having eternal life. Verse 20, in that day you will know that I am in the Father, I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commands and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him, or we will tabernacle with him. Um, which he's clearly talking about the Holy Spirit here in a second. And... Uh, the Holy Spirit filled the temple. Jesus was the true temple. All these themes are running through scripture. Verse 24, whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will, he will teach you all things and bring to you remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, and peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you wouldn't have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe." Right? He already said this a couple days ago. Right? I'm doing these things so that you would believe. Right? I'm not just like going to do things and then tell you after the fact and then tell you what happened and then you examine the evidence. and then, right? He's telling them everything so that you would believe. Verse 30. I will no longer talk much with you for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Right? So he's talking in the same sense. Peace. I'm giving you peace. You need to understand peace. I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. Now I'm breathing on you the Holy Spirit. Just as the Father sent me, I'm sending you. The world's not going to see me, but they're going to see you, and you'll see me. Right? He's re reiterating the same ideas, right? Because he had already told them, and the purpose, right? And John even reiterates, now I'm telling you these things so that you would believe, Right? The chapters are uh, nearly mirrored, or the accounts are, are nearly mirrored right there. And so uh, Jesus breathes on the, on the disciples the Holy Spirit, right? This is the first time in Scripture that we see them receiving, the disciples receiving the Holy Spirit, okay? Uh, we know that Jesus said uh, that if you cast out demons by the Spirit of God, know that the kingdom has come upon you. And that the, the disciples went and were amazed that they were casting out demons, right? Does that mean they had the Holy Spirit? 
Well, I don't know. It doesn't say that they did, but they sure were doing it by the Holy Spirit. Uh, does it mean something else? It could be. Uh, but had they yet received the Holy Spirit in this measure, I don't think so. And uh, that's a point of debate. And um, even if you read, I was reading John Gill's commentary on this last night to get a better idea, and I just personally disagree with him. Um, he doesn't think this is when they are regenerate or when they were being made alive through the Holy Spirit. Right? If you go back to chapter 3 of John with Nicodemus, it says that you must be born again to even perceive the Holy Spirit, or by the Spirit you can even perceive the kingdom, and you must be born again by the Spirit. Right? So when does that happen? Well, when the Holy Spirit does it. Uh, and so I believe this is when the disciples actually became regenerate. Uh, there's different um, theologians that think otherwise and relate it to that this is the beginning of the apostolic age where they receive the gifts of the Spirit. But we know that they don't receive the gifts of the Spirit yet, uh, for not for another um, 50 days. And so that's something to consider. Um, the Spirit was given, but we know that the Spirit was given in a measure uh, for a purpose, and it was not in the fullest of measure of what they were going to receive yet. And so, um, more Holy Spirit, good, right? And so he breathes on them the Holy Spirit, uh, and this is in how, and this should bring to remembrance how in Genesis 1, that Adam was, was breathed into the breath of God, and then he was given real life, right? He was, uh, same thing in Ezekiel, was that 37, with the Valley of Dry Bones, where we're looking at, there's, uh, even in Genesis 1, he had formed all these, this flesh and this man, and he was just a body, he was just laying there. He was effectively not alive, he was dead. And he gets breathed in to, by the breath of God, and he becomes a living soul, is what the scriptures say. And the same thing in, uh, in Ezekiel, where he puts the bones and the sinews and the muscles and the skin, and there's just this giant flesh army uh, with no life, right? And then once the, the Spirit of God, once the breath of God comes into the army, then they become living, right? And so uh, there's that theme all throughout scripture, right? That the, the breath of God, the wind, the Holy Spirit is breathed into, and that's where real life is formed. And so study that theme more, more out. Uh, we got five to eight minutes, so let's keep going. Uh, we might only get through verse 23, but whatever. Uh, they receive the Holy Spirit, verse 23. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Well, there's a lot of people I'd like to get back at and not forgive them and make sure that they don't get forgiven so I don't withhold their sins and they get paid what they get paid and eternal damnation, there they go. I'm the arbiter, right? Wrong. Uh, that's not what Jesus is saying. I think I wrote a note on here that says something about the Catholics. Uh, your outline says, the Catholics take this too seriously with the doctrine of apostolic secession. Uh, Jesus is saying that he is sending out his disciples into the world to do the same thing he did. Uh, every one of the apostles understood this, and they went and built the church. Um, 
And we see the fruit of this in, in different passages. And so Jesus isn't saying that we can actually forgive people's sins, that I can atone for them. Jesus isn't sending us out in the same way to atone for people's sins. I'm not going to die anywhere for anybody's sins, except for maybe my own. And that's not sufficient enough. Uh, I need something greater. And so um, uh, in Catholic theology, they take this a little bit too uh, literal and maybe not understand uh, meta-narratives and themes and how this plays out. Like nowhere do you see this in the epistles or the writings or the book of Acts of people saying that I can physically forgive your sins, right? Even when Simon the... uh, magician says, pray for me. They just say, you're in the gall of bitterness. Like, like, you, like come on. Uh, but, and so that's the next thing he's talking about. Like when you're being sent out, you're being filled with the Holy Spirit and he's giving this authority to the church that we can see in such verses as uh, like 1 Corinthians 5, when Paul's writing uh, about a man who's having relations, sexual relations with his stepmom. And he's not giving like a, like, here's the program. Like, give him a couple more weeks, and if he does well, you know, let him back in. He's seeing the fruit of the people and saying, in the same, using the same Old Testament language, expel the evil from among you, right? We can't actually forgive people's sins in the sense that it atones for them. But one of the missions of the church is to see the fruit of God and to act accordingly, right? Luke 6, uh, I think I've got it on there, where Jesus says, like, a good tree cannot produce bad fruit and a bad tree cannot produce good fruit. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you, right? A tree is known by its fruits. So we, as the church, are supposed to bring about the kingdom of God and see what the Lord is doing, Right? Uh, we are, um, the scriptures were written in such a way that we're supposed to be a society of people that is uh, given uh, counsel and insight and wisdom by God to be his people on the earth. And we as a church are that society. And we have laws and we have bylaws and we have the ways we act, right? And that is the kingdom of God incarnate on the earth in such a way, in a particular sense. And so... Uh, what do we do in society when people act up? We punish them through, uh, like when I got a speeding ticket the other day, uh, through fines, through exorbitant fines that are way too much. And the processing fee is way too much. And, uh, but you know what? Uh, I don't know if you drive the same way, but I normally avoid spinning. But today, I was like, well, I need to go to Kroger, so I'm going to go down spinning. But guess what? I drove 25 in the 25, and there was a cop sitting there. Uh, guess what? I didn't, I didn't get a speeding ticket today, but I surely had opportunity to. And so uh, God's designed it in such a way that in the church, to bring about his kingdom, uh, we are proclaiming the gospel, right? People receive uh, Christ through the proclamation of the gospel. They receive uh, justification through Christ's atonement, through faith. And so we proclaim that gospel, that good news, and we see the fruit of what God's doing. We could plant, we can water, 
but we're looking for the growth, right? And then we act accordingly. And so uh, we could, uh, we talked about it in 1 John 1. You can kind of read that in context of confession of sin um, and various ways to live in unity and fellowship with one another. But uh, we're supposed to be the mouthpiece of God. I can't say, John Luke, I forgive your sins, you're going to heaven. I don't have that authority. But I can tell you what the scripture says, what God's doing. And if you're um, like struggling with condemnation, I can tell you that God forgives you. I could be what Jesus said is, just as the Father sent me, so I am sending you. Jesus came and preached, about the, preached the gospel through parables about the kingdom. And he did miracles and he did attesting signs and he cast out demons and he healed the sick. And that's how we're sent, right? We're doing the same things. We are to proclaim forgiveness of sins in what God is doing, right? That is, uh, John doesn't have a whole lot of room to write. Like in, like in Romans, we have a whole book on what is the gospel, right? He says he's writing about the gospel and he gives you like 16 chapters about it. Uh, John says he's writing so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. And so this seminal or beginning idea of the gospel of proclaiming forgiveness of sins or withholding forgiveness of sins is essentially uh, part of what he's saying of you're going to extend the kingdom. You're going to preach the gospel, right? Someone who is unrepentant uh, is, you can tell by fruit that their sins are being withheld and you can proclaim that. And so the overarching idea is that's what we're doing as the church. We're not atoning for sins. We're preaching the gospel and we're doing God's work, right? Jesus didn't come to condemn the world. He came to, to save the world, right? John three sixteen, And so in two minutes, let's just talk. Well, I won't read the, you guys know the account of Thomas. Uh, uh, eight days later, right, which is in Jewish counting, if you don't, believe that, and that's just some uh, pseudo-Christian way to say that that's Sunday again. Go read Josephus and other Jewish historians. They count that same way. Uh, what's, what's the first day of creation? What day number is it? It's day one. So today is day one. Uh, eight days later is we're back to day one, right? There's no zero. And so uh, J- Jesus appears again right? And let's just skip to verse 26. He says, peace be with you, right? This is the third time he says, peace, 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 right? This is what we're coming. I'm coming to bring peace, right? To my disciples. Uh, Thomas sees that. He asks for evidence. Jesus Christ condescends to him to show him the evidence. I always think that's amazing uh, because, you know, um, you know, if I'm dealing with people and they say, well, I need to like do this and this and this, and then I'll kind of like believe or like that'll, and I'm like, well, you just need to believe because God's real and that's just the facts. Just do it. Uh, but Jesus actually condescends to Thomas's disbelief, right? Thomas didn't believe. Uh, he wanted the same evidence. Uh, he, I don't know if we should call him Downing Thomas. That's kind of debatable, but, but he surely didn't believe and Jesus commands him to believe and he condescends and gives him the exact evidence that he wanted. But 
Thomas, at that point, doesn't say, okay, well, let me see it, come a little bit closer, let's check. Uh, he says, my Lord and my God, right? He didn't, he said he wanted the evidence, but then was, he didn't actually examine when he saw Christ, right? He didn't actually, uh, doesn't count that. He said he put his fingers in his side or his hands. Uh, he was just commanded by the Lord, saw the Lord, and then, and then believed. And so, uh, I just love that Christ was willing to condescend to Thomas's belief or to Thomas's um, request, right? He knew what he requested through the disciples, and um, that's the Lord we have that, that condescends in that sense. And so uh, we end in verse 30 and 31. Uh, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not, not written. But what we started with is, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus, excuse me, is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Uh, he tells Thomas, blessed are those who have not believed. That was in direct context of multiple disciples who did not see Jesus resurrected and had to trust the account of his disciples. And so that was a first century context. That's also a today context. And so uh, we are, belief is a command, uh, but through that we have life through Christ. That's real life. And we looked about that on Tuesday in, in unity and, and how Christ brings about life. And so uh, with that, everyone's commanded to believe, right? Everyone would then probably have a response of, I believe, help my unbelief. I'm glad we got it. All right. Uh, Let's pray and end there. Uh, Lord, we thank you for your scriptures. Thank you for revealing your Christ. Uh, thank you for condescending and uh, appearing to your disciples. Thank you that they wrote down their firsthand accounts so that we may believe and have life in your name. Jesus, we pray. Amen.